the game pit this is episode 17 and it's a council chamber episode and it's also our end of year review we're going to be joined by lots of our gaming friends in this episode and we're going to be talking about various topics we're going to go over our favorite releases from 2013 we're also going to be talking about our favorite new to us games from this year we're also going to go through the best 12 things that have happened to us this year in gaming and what we would have liked Santa to bring us. So as I said, we're going to have some of our gaming friends popping in and out throughout the episode. So let's get to saying hello to them. So first of our guests to join us this week, back by popular demand, is Puria. Hello guys, nice to be back again. It's it's those soulful eyes back again. I, just, I couldn't wait, I couldn't wait. <laughs> uh, well, it's good to be back again anyway. Also joining us in this episode is the man who has the dubious honour of having introduced the worst game I've ever played at any Essen. It's Nathan. Good evening, Ronan. Good evening, Sean. Hello, Nathan. (laughs) Nathan introduced me to the rather awful Expedition Sumatra. Explain yourself, Nathan. Um, I actually enjoyed that game. However, when reading the rules and trying to teach from the rulebook, it was a little bit confusing. It was quite late at night. And I may have read the phrase can as cannot in one of the quite important rules. Which made the slightest, slightest of differences. Led to a bit of a gaming disaster. Which unfortunately (laughs) helped me win the game. No, Nathan. (laughs) Opening opening that box led to a bit of a gaming disaster. (laughs) So every comment for the rest of the episode from Nathan, big pinch of salt, everyone. And one more of our guests who's joining us this week is our friend Terry. Hey, Terry. Hello. Hello. Uh, and you're going to be talking about your favourite games of 2013 as well and what you want Santa to give us. Is that correct? That's right. Also joining us this week is the loudest lady in gaming. It's Bonnie Kate. Hi, Ronan. Hey, Bonnie Kate. How are you? I am glorious. Glorious. <laughs> Fantastic. Excited to be on the game pit? Really excited. Excited about your game choices? I'm always excited. <laughs> and that's the sort of noise pitch that we That's <laughs> what I'm known for. Another one of our guests this week, joining us from the Royal Society of Gamers, is the smarmiest man in gaming, Lloyd. What a pleasant introduction as always, Ronan. Thank you very much. I, I went through 20 adjectives and that was the nicest one I could come up with. <laughs> Did all the others get bleeped out? <laughs> You'd have to ask Sean in the editing suite. <laughs> we had it. We we did have a few other suggestions, but let's move on. So here I am joining your podcast. So this is what selling out feels like. So, <laughs> thank you very much. You no. got your transfer fee. <laughs> we took the high ground. We just died quietly in the corner. <laughs> and that was the best place for you. So we're going back to after this. And next up, we have my wonderful wife, Natalie, who I have managed to bludgeon into appreciation for games over the last few years. Hello, Natalie. Hello. And welcome to the Game Pit, Natalie. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So you're going to be hearing lots more from our friends and us in the rest of the episode. And don't forget that you can catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of gaming goodness. And we are also proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts.
first thing we're going to do in our review of 2013 is talk about our favourite games that have been released in the past 12 months. We're both going to run down a top three. So we'll crack straight in and my number three from 2013 is Lewis and Clark. It's from Cedric Chabassi and it was published by Ludonaut. It is based around the Lewis and Clark famous expedition to map continental United States of America. And in this particular game, it's card driven, it's a resource management game, and each player is playing a different expedition who are racing across from St. Louis to the Pacific coast, and the first person to get there is going to win the game. It's a fairly deep game, it's going to run for two hours or more usually, plays one to five players, although I think really you're talking two to four to get the best out of it. I really love the the theme here and what I particularly love is that what they've done is they've taken a racing game theme which is really what this is is absolutely trying to get across the Pacific as quickly as possible and taken medium heavy Euro mechanisms and melded them in which makes it a really interesting blend I love the use of cards they're very cleverly used they've got multiple different uses throughout the game also they're powered in different ways so when you play a card even if you're using it for the same function as you have previously, it doesn't mean it's going to play with the same exact power or what have you, or depending upon what other people have played around you, it's going to change its function. It looks absolutely fantastic, beautiful components. It's perhaps the only thing I say about it is it's a little bit solitary. There's not a huge amount of interaction going on, but there is some. I think just we got used to Euros being very interactive over the last couple of years. This is a bit more of a move back towards you're trying to create your own little engine and manage your own expedition amongst other people managing their expeditions. It's a fantastic brain workout. It's very thinky. You're going to be sitting there concentrating, trying to work out what the best move is for you, planning ahead because short-termism at the beginning of the game is not going to get you anywhere. I think this really is a fantastic game. It's getting a good buzz. It's slowly building momentum, and I really think it's worth playing. Sean, any thoughts on Lewis and Clark? I think you've really touched on all of it there mate to be honest uh, it is a stunning looking game it's one of the more pretty games that we've released in this and this year i do love the kind of juggling act that you've got to put into play uh, in this game you can't race too far ahead with not enough supplies you can't overload with supplies ronan's already spoken about how the cards work differently i love the aspect where you've got to choose the card that you're going to play and you've got to power it with other cards as well so uh, there's, there's lots going on in this that i really really enjoy i love the fact that it comes in with a little blend of euro and american type gaming and there's the historical element to it as well yeah it's it's definitely one of the games that i've really enjoyed this year great so good choice by me i think so well done <laughs> thank you very much let's crack on to your number three which is also a good choice well, my number three for this year is Invaders by Mark Chaplin from White Goblin Games, and it plays two players. It's a card-driven, asymmetrical battle between two players. One player is going to be the human defending Earth, and one is going to be the aliens attacking Earth. This game has a real to-and-fro feel to it. It's highly stressful i think we've talked about it in a previous episode how stressed i got playing this game and it took me a long time to get the thought process round to actually realizing that i really enjoyed it it's full of tension i think ronan said it and he said it perfectly if you feel like you're winning in this game 
then everything is about to go wrong. It's one of those games that you always seem to think the other person's doing better than you. It always feels like you're you're battling the, the tide. Just to talk a little bit more about the actual how the game looks beautiful lots of depth in the cards lots of different things to do it's definite feel to both of the factions the humans do feel like they are defending and they're just scuppering everything that the aliens are doing the aliens you do feel like you're constantly having to come up with a, a new way to try and just break that earth surface just to get in there try and get a foothold somewhere yeah it's it's a great game, and as you've already said, Ronan, you're a bit of a fan of this one. Oh, I absolutely love it. It's uh, Mark Champlin designed Revolver and Revolver 2, which are also asymmetric two-player games. I absolutely love them, and this is, if possible, and the first couple of plays, even better. It builds on that idea of Revolver. It extends it, makes it a bit longer, and adds some more in there, so it's not so tactical. It's much more strategic. The decisions you make early in the game are going to affect you later on in the game. I love the theme. They've gone for the alien versus humans theme you see in a lot of places, but slightly different. In this case, the aliens have had a foothold on Earth for a year, but the war's been carrying on. So you're coming to that tipping point where the aliens have to do more than just you know keep clanging on by their uh, claw nails, should we say. And the humans, it's time they've got to hit back, otherwise they're going to be overrun. It looks great. So many individual pieces of art in the game, so many clever pieces of art. It's, as you said amazingly tense just this is headache inducing there's so much to explore there's so many different ways of playing with the two different decks of cards i think this is a really great choice brilliant now <laughs> we fight we finally agreed on something now ronan what's your number two choice okay so my number two choice released in 2013 is forbidden desert it's from Matt Leacock, the designer, and published by GameRight. It's two to five players, and it's building on the previous release of Forbidden Island. And Matt Leacock is famous for his uh, cooperative games. Also, he did Pandemic. It's based around, I think the idea kind of is, on Forbidden Island, if you escaped, you escaped on a helicopter. In Forbidden Desert, your helicopter was crashed in the desert. And you've got clues to the location of different components of a mystical flying machine that is buried somewhere in the sand. And as a team, you're going to have to work together to uncover these clues, discover where the bits of the machine are, gather them together on the launch pad and fly away before this raging storm overwhelms you. I think that Forbidden Island is a good family game, which gamers can play, but there's probably not quite enough depth there for repeated plays from a gaming group. Forbidden Desert takes it and turns everything up. It ups the difficulty, it ups the component quality, it ups the way that you have to play as a team, and it takes a family game and really steps it into an area in which challenges gamers. I've played this quite a few times and I've only ever won it once and I was very happy when I did win it. It's very well paced. The excitement builds throughout the game. The tension builds. You can see how the different areas, for example, you lose in this game if you run out of sand tiles that get placed by the storm. Now, early on, that's not such an issue, but as the game builds up and the storm intensifies, you're placing more and more and suddenly you realise you're running out of sand and what wasn't a priority earlier becomes a priority now. You're always at risk of dying from lack of water, so you're having to work together as to where these wells are, how you keep water, how you share shades. Really creates a lot of communication around the, the table, but there's enough changing between each turn that you can't have this alpha player, former plan, run through it through three turns of everyone. You have to really think on your feet. 
It feels genuinely threatening. It's got that toy, visceral, cool factor that you're actually playing with physical bits. I think it's really, really good game. I would not have thought this would be as high up as number two before it's released. I thought it was just going to be another take on Forbidden Island. But he's taken that, like I said, a good game and turned it into really an excellent game. So for me, yeah, I think it looks amazing. And I love the visual representation of your victory with the airship built and you can even pile your your little player pieces onto it and push push your little airship off the board fantastic i think it's a good choice i'm not completely convinced that it's a great choice so i've got a couple of questions here for you ronan okay go on shoot now the water carrier is it not essential that the water carrier has to be one of your characters and does that limit the choice in the game I think it probably is essential unless you get really good at the game. But that speaks to me with the fact that the game is really challenging. In Forbidden Island, it didn't really matter what characters I had after a few plays of it because we were not guaranteed a win, but as good as. In this, you have to have the right blend of characters and you have to play well or you're not going to win. So, I mean, limiting the choice. I, in terms of, let's say, Pandemic that Matt Leacock made... When the expansions bring in all the hundreds of different roles that you can have, I don't think they really add anything to a game. It's not something I find that interesting. So the fact that you have to have a water carrier every time, I don't really mind that, to be honest. And, but I'll take up board. This is a highly personal choice. I just find this to really hit my button for some reason. And I find it really, really exciting. I know other people might not find it as exciting as I do. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that totally. But another issue that I have with it, and it's a very, very slight issue. In Forbidden Island, you have a card that can come out like Falls Landing. And that's going to add a little bit of tension, a little bit of excitement. When I've played Forbidden Desert, it's just an overwhelming sense of doom. There's There's not that one tense moment in it. Now, also, just following on from that question, if you've, like yourself, already own Forbidden Island, is it worth buying Forbidden Desert? Is it different enough? In terms of that one moment of being excitement in Forbidden Island, see, I think that's the strength of Forbidden Desert. If you're not playing well, you're just going to get smashed and you're not going to get that build-up of excitement. If you're playing well and you're getting close to winning, the game is also going to be getting close to beating you. And then it becomes a real neck-and-neck thriller ride of will we squeak this one out before we get overwhelmed by one of these three or four different things that can kill us. And I think it's a real strength. It's not a game that peaks and troughs in excitement. It's a game that builds steadily in excitement until you get to a real pitch where at the end, those last couple of turns oh, maybe if we do this and you do that, hold on a second, if you do that, then you can use this action to do this and you're just trying to stay just ahead of that storm in order to get away, you know, you can almost see the cinematic moment of the airship taking off just as the storm comes in and engulfs the uh, launch pad. I, I think it's a strength. And in terms of whether it's different enough from Forbidden Island, well, if you think Forbidden Island is not enough of a challenge, then yes, I think it is different enough. I mean... It's not massively different. It's definitely in the same family. But if you enjoy the Forbidden Island mechanisms, or you think it's a little bit too easy and a little bit too much, perhaps a children's game, go for Forbidden Desert and don't even try and tell me this is too easy. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Ronan. And I'm going to move on now to my number two choice, and that's Rampage by Antoine Bowser and Ludovic Morblanc. And it's from Repos Production, and it plays two to four players. In Rampage, I think we've talked about it before, each of your players are going to represent a monsters attacking Meeple City. The board is made up of 
these building floors stacked on meeples, and it's actually a 3D visual representation of a little city. Basically, what you're going to do is go and destroy this city. You're going to get points for floors of the buildings that you take out, meeples that you send flying and scattering across the the board you can do this in a couple uh, some various ways you can drop your monster directly on to the buildings you can flick things off your monster's head and you can even put your chin on top of your monster and blow and try and blow these things down there's not a lot to this and the meeples can have their revenge on you if they fall off the board then they can cause you penalty points. Obviously, everybody else is going to be trying to scupper you if your monster gets knocked over, for instance. That's going to cause you to lose a tooth, and teeth are how you eat the meeples and chew down on things. And Yeah, it's a very, very simple game. This game is stunning. I think it's one of the most beautiful games released. It's very cartoony colourful, vivid, stunning, especially when that city is built up on the board. Uh, it's just worth taking, standing back and looking at that board when it's all made up. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a wonderful group game. It, that's what it's this all about, getting a group of like-minded friends who don't mind acting the Egypt for half an hour, 45 minutes, and just having a bit of fun. It's one of those games that you really, really don't need to be competitive in. You can really just relax, chill out. If you've just played a three-hour game of Agricola and your head is burning, have a game of this. It will completely recharge your batteries. It's, I absolutely love the game. Ronan? It's got great toy factors of the game, like you say. The We talked about it in our Essen Roundup. Lovely components. It's loads of fun. When you get it out and play it, everyone's interested. Everyone comes over because it's slightly different. You you have to get up to, to blow from the top of the monsters and everyone's going to have a laugh. And when you, you drop the monsters on top of the buildings, everything flies everywhere. People are just grinning and, and joining in the fun. It's almost as much fun to watch as it is to play. You know, for example, like the scoring really doesn't make too much sense. But it's, it's the playing that's the fun bit. It's funny. It's kind of random. Don't take it too seriously. I think it's probably a bit too light for me to think it's worthy of a place in the top three for the year, but it certainly is a lot of fun and different to, to pretty much any other game I have. So, of course, choose your friends wisely during this game because with that blowing aspect to the game, it could get quite messy. That's a nice thought to finish on. <laughs> okay, so my favourite release of 2013 goes to something very unexpected, a two-player abstract game, and this one is The Duke, designed by Jeremy Holcomb and Stephen McLaughlin. And like I say, two players, a playing time of around 30 minutes, but really that varies wildly from 10 minutes up to an hour, depending on how the game goes. It's an abstract game, like I said, and each player has an identical bag of tiles. And each tile is two-sided, and each tile contains the name of a piece, if you like, or a character. You start off with the same three pieces on the board. That's your duke and two footmen. And each piece in the game, whether it be in the bag that's going to be drawn out later or starting on the board, has got, on either side, a grid. And the grid shows you how that piece can move, how it can attack, how it can defend, or how it can command other pieces around it. And the simple goal of the game is to capture the other person's duke. So it's chess-like in that fashion. 
It's also chess-like in that it's played on a grid. In this case, it's a 6x6 grid. And on your turn, you're either going to move one of your pieces or you're going to draw a new piece and place it orthogonally adjacent to your duke. When you move a piece, it flips over. And on the other side, there's going to be a different set of instructions in a grid which tells you a different way in which this tile can now move or attack, command or defend. And each time you move a piece, you flip it so that it's alternating between its movements. This provides a really interesting sort of way to play the game because you have to set up your moves multiple moves ahead and each side of the tile is generally going to show you lots of different ways that this tile can interact with the tiles around it. Also when you're adding a tile onto the board or you're you know, drawing a piece you're going to draw from a big selection of pieces so it adds a bit of random in there. It's not completely what game that you can work out have a strategy and that's going to work every time. You have to adapt both to what you draw and also to what the other player draws. Also with the reduced size of the board from 64 squares and the chessboard down to 36 and this, everything is very much a knife fight. You're involved in there, you're very close, you're only ever you know, three or four moves away from doing something special. And a good piece of play can really open up the board or if you're playing well you can really close down the other person's options. I love it. I can't believe that I like a two-player abstract this much. It's not really my style of game. It's so much fun. There's so much thinking to be done, but there's no point thinking and trying to plan too far ahead. So hopefully you don't get too bogged down in analysis paralysis. It's a puzzle which is shifting all the time, and you're having to react to this puzzle, and you're having to rework out what is the most optimal move, and games if both players become competent can get really vicious and really fun and people don't want to give an inch there's loads of variety packed into this box it's just a fantastic fantastic game i just loved it so much an unexpected hit and my favorite release in 2013 the duke yes is, is it controversial over there yeah no not really my kind of thing I've just got one thing I want to ask you. Is this not just chess with a bit of variety thrown in? And why would that be a bad thing? It's, it is, yeah. I guess it kind of is. But in terms of chess, I'm never going to become really good at chess because it takes a lot of study. It takes hundreds of thousands of games. It takes me able to recognise board positions. This is... A game for people who are too impatient to get great at chess, I think, because you can't get perfect at this game. Well, I guess you could, but it would be so many thousands of games that it's beyond my imagination to play a game that often to get perfect at it. There's so many different situations that are going to come up, and the situation is going to change so much. And as soon as a player draws a tile, it's a different position than any other game really you've been in of it before, that it's more about mental flexibility than it is about learning how to play the game i think that once you've played this two or three times you're going to have a good chance of winning at someone who's played it a few dozen times because it's all about how you think at that time and adapt to that puzzle on the board right i i appreciate this game and i can appreciate this game but i appreciate it from afar it's not my type of thing i haven't had my abstract epiphany i just it just seems to me like pushing square blocks around around a very basic board. Now, don't get me wrong. For what it is, the components are really, really cool. They're, they're very, very striking. But it's just, it's not the type of game that I, I will enjoy. Now, 
given that it is completely abstract, and as I said, I do, f- I did feel like there was a very, very strong hint of chess about it. I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't hate it, and for me, that's probably the best plaudit I can give it. That I didn't hate an abstract game. Right. You know, I'm going to make you play this more and more and more. <laughs> Yeah, never it's my choice. The Duke is coming out until you like it. I'm gonna brainwash you. Um, also, I, we'll, we'll go with that. And my choice to be Arkham Horror. You'll you'll get first. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, lovely, great. How, how are your copies of Eldritch Horror going? Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> Sean's got making a tradition of getting doubles of games for Christmas. Anyway. Sean, your number one pick of 2013, I think, is much less controversial in these here parts. Yeah, it's something that we have talked loads about, so I'll be as brief as I can. It's Francis Drake by Peter Hawes from Eagle Games, playing three to five players. It's a game where you start off in Plymouth Harbour. There's two aspects to this game, really. You start off in Plymouth Harbour, and then you're going to be looking to sail out into the Caribbean in search of riches. So in the Plymouth section of the game, it's what we've, I think we've uh, designated as progressive worker placement. This is where you can only place your marker beyond where you are presently. So you can never go backwards. So you have to choose very, very carefully what you're going to get because you're going to need to gather all your resources for your voyage. You're going to need food barrels. That's going to allow you to sail further into the Caribbean. You're going to need men. You're going to need these men to attack the the fortresses and the towns. Uh, You're going to need guns to attack the galleons that await you out in the Caribbean. So you've got to really think about it. You can also upgrade your ship to a galleon. That's the only way that you're going to be able to attack those galleons, by the way. So once you've done this, once, and it's a real game of cat and mouse, do you leap forward to get those really important barrels? Do you hang back and try and sort of sweep up everything that everyone else is left behind? Do you go straight for a galleon? Because there's only going to be a limited number of galleons available to you. So it's it's really interesting. That to me, I think it's my slightly favoured aspect of this game. Then you move into the Caribbean and then you start sailing. You're going to go out and collect resources. You're going to go out and attack, as I said, these villages and these forts and these galleons. And you're going to be getting rewards for doing so. You're going to be getting not only rewards that the galleons give you, but the first player to successfully attack one of these places or successfully take one of these things is going to get an extra special gem now this game we've talked about it time and time again and you know what i don't care we're going to talk about it again it's absolutely stunning it's it's just the production values on this game are amazing ronan francis drake yeah we did go over it at some length just last episode so we'll keep it brief it's two games in one it's a good solid Worker placement game. It's got, as you say, that progressive worker placement, which I think is underutilized, really interesting mechanism, followed up by a round of real good bluffing fun in different ways, whether it's bluffing with where you put the reinforcements if you're choosing the right character, or where you're going to go to first, second, third, etc., down on the map of the Caribbean. Both good, solid bits brought together, sewn into a whole by fantastic components. 
and it improves as people learn the game because they there's an obvious way of playing and then there's probably a slightly better way of playing and people become more efficient which means there's more fights over the really important spaces only concern is and now this is going to take a few quite a few plays but the longevity of it because it doesn't change up that much between plays but that's tiny tiny i haven't got there yet um i'm cracking on towards double figures in plays and i'm still having lots of fun there are so many people that want me to teach them this game because i think it's a bit of a hefty investment in terms of money so they want to know if they like it before they'll take the plunge but it was close to my top three really close and it's a great choice as number one sean yeah and even if you don't like the game you just buy it to look at it it's stunning so there you go that's our top three least in 2013 hi this is terry my favorite game of 2013 release was bora bora by steffenfeld i really like it it has a lot going on and lots of different ways to get victory points which is the kind of games that i like okay so terry this is a controversial choice because I've actually put this up as my biggest disappointment of 2013, so I think we might be having an argument now. I can imagine so. <laughs> Which is unusual for us. Yeah, very unusual. But biggest disappointment, that's quite thats quite deep. It is deep. It's its how I feel. I feel deeply let down by Mr. Feld. Yeah. Have you played the other Feld games? Were you disappointed by those? Bruges is pretty good. Bruges is okay, and I haven't played Rialto yet. But I, I don't think I've ever rated one of his games below like a seven. And then this was way like a three. It just didn't make any sense when I played it. Well, I, I don't know. I really liked it. Three seems pretty harsh. Well, okay. Well, we're going to explore this a bit more. Okay. That theme, does it make any sense? Does it have to make any sense? Uh, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I do like theme games, but Steppenfeld's games aren't always chock-a-block with theme and I still like them you know you've got your fish on the outside of the island they're thematic you're b- making jewelry that's thematic women make shells men make tattoos I mean there's things coming through but do you feel like you're really doing any of those things or it just like you're choosing a real abstract sort of action from many many and everything you do do is going to score you some points I didn't really feel like anything was really differentiated I just felt like I I've got no sort of priority going on here. But I think, you know, it depends who you play with. I think what I really like about it is you're using dice as, you know, as kind of workers. Sevenfell does that in Castle Burgundy as well. And I like that game a lot. But with this, you can block people, you know. If you only need a one dice to do the action you want to do, you go on it straight away. And that means no one else can do that action that round. You've blocked that off unless they use one of their special god cards and a god tile. But it's quite expensive. And so, as much as there's quite a lot of options to choose from, you can be blocked quite effectively, I think. Not at first to a bit of blocking, but in the game, sort of, which goes on for this long and is this deep and you're going on and on, it can be really frustrating to get just constantly blocked out. Well, I think, you know, I've got to admit, I haven't played this that many times and I've only played it two-player. And I played with my husband, Nathan, and I tended to do all the blocking. So maybe... If he'd managed to do some blocking of me, I wouldn't have liked it as much, right. but I don't know. I'll give Nathan a pep talk next time I see him. Sean, have you got any chat about Bora Bora? Yeah, Terry, there's a lot going on in this game. There's just tokens everywhere, loads of choices. Is there too much happening? I don't think so. And I think the fact that at the you know the end, end game scoring, if you've managed to get a jewellery in every single round, you get a bonus point. If you manage to complete your gold token every single round, you get 
you know, points. If you've managed to fill up every single square, you get points. And you can't do all of those. You have to choose if you're going to try and fill up your buildings or fill up all the squares on the kind of island map or fill up your section with man and woman tokens. There is no way you can do all of those. And so I think you do have to kind of choose a direction and go with it. And if you can get a jewelry thing every time, even if you're getting a really low value one, you're building up to get that bonus token at the end. So I think there is, you know, some direction in it. And feeding into to that question, it's supposed to take roughly sort of 30 minutes per player, but a lot of people are saying it does go over that limit. Is it too long sometimes? Again, I've got to say, I've only played with two players and we didn't find it too long. Obviously, you know, when we first got it, it was learning games and, uh, you know, that took a bit of time. But I think I'd have to try it four player and see see how that goes because I can imagine that would potentially drag. But essentially, there are, I think, six, yeah, six rounds and you've got three dice and that's basically it. So it shouldn't take too long unless people are messing around and taking a long time making decisions. Okay, Terry. So do you want to tell us why you think everyone should play uh, Bora Bora, your favourite release from 2013? I just think it's a really fun game. It's got nice artwork. It's got the dice being used as actions. And there's quite a lot of strategy in thinking which actions to go for first. What's your opponent or opponents? Which actions are they going to go for? Are you going to be blocked from doing what you do? Where, you know, when and where to use your god cards and tokens because they're quite expensive so that's for me why i liked the game hi it's lloyd here my game of 2013 is town center which is a game of building a 3d city by drafting cubes and building them into your own player mat you're trying to build up as well as out uh, while building efficiently scoring points for building large areas of residential and commercial which scores you money uh, losing points for building into the suburbs fantastic lloyd now town center is kind of a development on the designer's original game of Card City, which was similar to this game, but even just two-dimensional laying out cards as opposed to this building up with the cubes. Do you think that Town Centre offers anything more than Card City other than exactly the same game, just in 3D? This is going to frighten both of you, I know, but it's basically a step up in complexity. Card City is a interesting an interesting little puzzle game uh, where you're drafting cards to then put it into your city with a little bit of, of a bluffing element. Town Center does away with the bluffing, but adds a complexity, and you're now building those things into a third dimension. So mechanically, it doesn't add a huge amount, but it gives you another dimension to consider. So Lloyd, the game is just basically a small playmat with a few colored blocks. Surely a little bit more could have been expected, and would it have hurt them to throw in a tad of theme? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could have had wizards and dice, but instead what they did here is they added mechanisms instead of pretty art and theme. <laughs> he likes the wizards and dice. I do, yeah. Oh, is there no chance of an expansion with wizards and dice, Lloyd? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always a possibility, certainly. We can get in touch with the designer and see what we can come up with. But Castle Centre. <laughs> Castle Centre, yeah, absolutely. Dungeon Centre! Town Panic. <laughs> actually i'm a bit sad they took the bluffing away because i really like that from card city i think town center is lacking for that it's an odd one actually the bluffing was really interesting it seemed to be the idea that kind of made card city interesting for a lot of people in town center you don't have that what you have is it's a perfect information draft of cubes 
but the way in which you position the cubes enables you to potentially screw people over. It's hilarious when one person really needs a specific cube and everybody conspires to make sure they don't get it. Um, there is also a variant that has a, uh, a bidding way of taking the cubes, which I've not yet explored, but it's something there for uh, us to dig into once we're a bit more experienced with the game. Yeah, I think I'd have to work out how to score in it first, and that kind of leads on to my next <laughs> question. I did not get my head around that scoring at all. Now, that's not saying much, but does the scoring actually make any sense? It does. I mean, I know it's a complicated game. This is for, for ages 12 and up, so... Next time, maybe run and I'll hold your hand and take you through it a bit more slowly. I appreciate it. You said it. eight and up complex. before. That's why I played. I did say it up. I was giving you more credit than, than you were due, probably. So the scoring is quite simple. The way that it works is green cubes are your residential areas. You score one point if you have one green cube. You score two points if there's an extra green cube next to it. You score three points if there's an additional green cube next to that, and so on. It, you also score for building them vertically. You get bonus points. Uh, one bonus point if it is on level one, two bonus points if it's on level two, uh, four bonus points if it's on level three, and so on again, just accumulating using the exact same uh, ratio. What could be more simple? Me. <laughs> so, Angry Lloyd, does this game actually have any interaction? It has interaction insofar as there is a, a limited number of cubes that you are drafting. And so there's that the joy of hate drafting, as I mentioned earlier, if somebody really needs a cube, taking it just to deprive them of it. Uh, beyond that, it is a slight optimization puzzle where everybody else is doing their own puzzle, which is slightly different to yours. But that's not unlike most of the popular and successful Euros out there. Okay, cool. So to finish us off on Town Centre, Lloyd, why do you think everyone should play it? Uh, I think everyone should play it because there's not many other things out there like it. You're playing a three-dimensional puzzle, which does have some steam, despite the fact that Sean can't see it. Uh, it makes interesting decisions, doesn't take longer than it should, and will force you to think in ways that you've not thought about in other games. Hi, it's Natalie here, and my favourite game, released in 2013, is Bruges from Z-Man Games, designed by Stefan Feld. It's a quick and easy euro game with some dice rolling and hand management which really sums up what i enjoy about this game i do like a euro and i like it when you're not at risk of getting so much analysis paralysis i do really like something that moves quite quickly is a lot of fun but is something that you can get your teeth into a little bit so that really is why i like this game so natalie yeah i i actually agree it's actually one of my favorite releases of 2013 as well one of the criticisms is there's a little bit too much random in it to make it a sort of archetypal Euro game. How do you feel about the randomness in it? I quite like the randomness. As someone who really only plays games, you know, every so often, I'm not an experienced player and I find that something like this mechanic really does level the playing field so if I'm sitting down say with you and Ronan then I know at least I've got half a chance because you have this mechanic in there where at the end of every round you're going to get rid of your cards and have a whole new set of cards and I think that within that it means that you guys aren't then sprinting ahead and I'm kind of sat there on you know three points wondering where it's all gone wrong Let's not go too far. We, we both know <laughs> that you are very, very astute at Euro, especially economy games. Don't give me that. Oh, I'm the poor little lamb. 
<laughs> I am the poor little lamb. It's very rare that I win a game. So, is there any mechanics that you like about this game at all? I just, you know what? I just love everything about a Euro game. I like the economy aspect of it. I love a hand management game. I really do. I love card building. The mechanic where you have to put your, your houses down and play your characters down and really try and get an engine going within your turn really appeals to me and it's what draws me to this game hi nathan here my favorite game of 2013 is duel of ages 2 which i've played a number of times now and i have a lot of fun every time i play it takes about two to three hours or at least it has done every time i've played it and the theme is you have lots of different characters from books literature history tv all thrown into an arena and they fight to the death. Also, they go on quests, but normally I make them fight to the death. And they pick up random weapons and items that they can use to hurt each other in funny and random ways. And it's a lot of fun. So, given the sort of broad uh, theme of this one, Nathan, does it not come across as it's a little bit of a mess to play? I think it's designed to be a bit of a mess. It, I mean, it is. The characters are just thrown in there. It kind of reminded me of Hunger Games, but with, you know, not kids thrown in the arena, people plucked from history and, and books, and uh, and they just go at it. I think at the start, it does take a while to get going, because they need to get, you know, get weapons and get closer to each other so they can engage. But once it gets going, it's it's quite fun, and it is quite chaotic, but so is a, a brawl in a pub which this is sort of the game version of. So Nathan, I've never actually played this game, but I've seen it being played, and the components don't look to be of the highest standard. Um, I think the components are fine for what they are. I would, I mean, it would be lovely to have miniatures instead of the tokens of the characters that you're moving around, but then you would maybe have difficulty fitting them on the hexagons as they go around. But it is, the cards were fine and the, the board seems fine and it all fit together quite well. But I think it, it does require maybe a little bit of imagination without miniatures for the characters and just the tokens. Although they have nice pictures of them on the cards. You know, I guess there's room for improvement there. You're definitely selling it to me with the idea of a pub brawl with different characters from history. Yeah. It's one of those games I think that creates different stories have you got any particular funny moments from your games of Jewel of Ages 2 well whenever people are going through at the start they're looking at their characters and thinking oh who's this this person's powerful who's this maybe trying to find out who they are from TV because they you know for copyright reasons they don't use um, the same names and uh, people are quite happy to see what they have and I think our opponents in one game were really happy to get Genghis Khan who's obviously a mighty warrior and he ended up being taken out in one go by she was sort of looked like a milkmaid and was quite a weak character but we gave her a weapon and and she was able to kill him in one shot after they they brought him on and they were sort of hoping to bring in the cavalry with Genghis and then he ended up taking a dive (laughs) I think I've had a cheese dream about Genghis Khan being beaten up by a milkmaid (laughs) so Nathan the game does play on the long side I mean you've said it you've, you've gone up to sort of three hours but I've I've read on Board Game Geek that this game can go up to as much as four, four hours plus. Is it a little bit on the long side? Um, I think it's up to the people playing it. You can just make the map smaller, basically. It's, it's a modular map, 
and I think you can play with two, three, four of these map pieces. And if you want a shorter game, then you can just play a much shorter, uh, smaller map. And then that, that helps that. And also you can set a time limit. I don't know if we have made it to the, we said maybe 16 rounds, but if it's taken a bit longer, we've played only, say, 10. And normally half the characters are dead by the end of each game we've played anyway. So I think it would be boring if you played until there was sort of last man standing, because you would have one guy at one end of the map, another guy at the other, and they'd have to come in. So it's, it's sort of up to the players to set the time limit that they feel comfortable with. But I think you are looking at a minimum of two hours. I think it sounds like a game that needs that Spartacus house rule. If, if you run away during combat three times in a row, you, you've, everyone else is free to punch you. Oh, that will happen anyway. <laughs> you know, you really do get into character, so... I can see Sean as the milkmaid and me as Genghis Khan. Well, taking you out in one swipe, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So, Nathan, just to sum up for us, why do you think that us and our listeners should play Jewel of Ages 2? I think it's a very enjoyable game that actually makes you get into the characters that you're playing and enjoy the adventure that they're having. And you get to see things that you might think, oh, they should have had that on TV. Because you can have John Wayne riding in on his horse to take out the sheep rustlers, but instead of using a pistol, he uses a flamethrower you know, or a rocket launcher. And it, it just makes those moments a lot more enjoyable and you, you're just souping up history or, or books, literature, things that you enjoy. Redoing your favourite stories, but with bazookas. Hey, it's Bonnie Kate, and my favourite game from 2013 was Coup Reformation. Coup Reformation is the expansion to regular coup, and it brings in uh, the idea of religion, which allows you to be one of two sides, and you can only attack people on the other side. So, Bonnie Kate, um, the original coup is a game in which uh, players had two cards which detailed roles, and they were face down in front of them, and they also acted as lives. And on their turn, they could take the power of any role in the game, which they may or may not have had in front of them. And it was up to the other players whether they thought the person was telling the truth or not. And everyone's attempted to gather some money in order to kill each other off and be the last person standing. Is that right? Yes. Okay, what does Coup Reformation do to change that up? Coup Reformation makes it so that you have the Catholics and the Protestants, and you can only attack people so take their money or try to kill them if they're on the opposite team or the opposing religion, which means that there's a lot more strategy now in who you're attacking, when you're attacking them, and also you can change people. You can convert them either to the other religion or to your religion, or you can change yourself, which means that you can effectively protect yourself from being killed, which is an interesting addition. Okay, and do you win and lose as a team, or is it still an individual winner? No, it's still individual winner because if everyone is the same religion, then it's a free-for-all. Oh, nice. Okay. In the whole sort of games of, of coup, a lot of it seems to be guessing. When I've played it, I'm not really sure whether someone's telling the truth, if they are the role they're claiming to be or not. How much of it do you think is guessing and how much do you think once you get to play it a few times, do you start getting some information? Um, I think most of it is information because... Taking a guess is not usually your best option because if you're wrong, then you lose a life. So what typically you'll be doing is there's a card called the Ambassador, which allows you to look at the deck and see what's in the deck because there's a limited number of roles. So once you've seen a few of them, you can tell someone's lying because the card isn't available for them to have or you just have to read them. So I think it's more about reading the player and making the choice at the proper moment of when it's appropriate to call them out. 
not necessarily when you think they might be lying, but when it's really important for them to be lying. Okay, and when it gets down to the to closing stages of the game, how much do you think it becomes about Kingmaker? If I've got the money to coup and there's a couple of people left, am I just choosing who's going to win by who I'm going to kill off? You are choosing who's going to die, but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll win because it doesn't mean that a person who's against you is going to win. Ideally, what you'll do is kill the other strongest player in an attempt to win. What more often happens in kingmaking situations is three people who one of them has the opportunity to steal money from someone and the person who's not stolen from is is at an advantage, at which point to stop that from happening, that's when you need to start calling people on their characters before that um, kicks in. Okay, cool. Why do you think everyone should play Coup Reformation as your favourite release of 2013? I think everyone should play Coup Reformation because it changes the base game quite dramatically and it's a game that you can play in 15 or 20 minutes um, but with the addition it does increase that time a little bit so it becomes more intensive and it's just a really great game it's fun and we get to laugh and kill people hi this is Poria, and uh, my best game of 2013 is a study in emerald by martin wallace it's a team game based on the short story by Neil Gaiman. Uh, it's based on the Cthulhu uh, and H.P. Lovecraft uh, world in which you are basically either fighting for the loyalist or the restorationists. And uh, the game is driven through a deck building mechanic, uh, which lets you control areas of the board to gain influence, to score points, and in the process to identify Uh, other people's secret identities to try and be on the winning side and have the most point in doing so. Fantastic. Now, this is a real recent release, Puria, so I don't know too much about it. Is it mechanically strong or is this really all about the theme that's garnered so much interest? I think in terms of our play experience, it was uh, a lot of fun was the kind of general consensus. I know the game has a few drawbacks, one of them being it's slightly difficult to teach. The other is it's maybe not the most attractive game in the world. But once you're immersed into the game with the secret identities, with the deck building, uh, it all comes together into a very enjoyable game that's a lot of fun. So, Puri, you talked about it not being the most attractive game in the world. Now, I actually kickstarted this project and they slowly released more and more of the artwork from the game. It started off looking really, really nice. So with the cards looked really good, but then that board, it's not great. Is it? No, I think, um, as you were alluding to, some of the elements are actually quite attractive. And when you, when you look at the deck of cards and everything else, it all looks really good. It's hard to pin down exactly what it is. It's just something on the board that doesn't kind of come together in terms of the overall look and feel but to be honest when you're playing it 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 kind of stops mattering at some point and um you know again the tokens used for the agents you have are fairly standard kind of have this martin wallace feel in terms of being fairly simple and plain in color but you know they're functional it works and while it would have been nicer to have it slightly prettier it works just fine so i'm okay with that for now you mentioned it wasn't the easiest game to teach. What is it about it? Is it the fact that it's mechanically complex? Is the rule book helpful in teaching? The components themselves, do they all make sense? What do you think it is that creates that sort of barrier? Um, I think it's, in essence, really just a deck builder, but 
the fact that you're trying to vie for control on top of these separate decks that you then draw the cards from isn't very intuitive uh, until you've played around. So it's it's a concept that's fairly easy to play once you've gone through that um, first 10, 20 minutes of the game, but it's quite hard to pick up from the rule book. And I think when someone sits down and shows you how it's done, it's fine. It's just from the rule book, the concepts don't really come together very well. And I think they explain everything piece by piece, which makes it difficult to put together in your head. Uh, it's not helped by the fact that the scoring is slightly complicated and the description of the scoring is actually quite terrible. Uh, there are a few guides on BGG already that make it a lot easier to break that down and explain it because without that, it's kind of difficult to sit there and put into context what you're actually trying to achieve. Just piggybacking onto what Ronan just said, this game, as I followed it on the Kickstarter campaign, it did have a few problems with the flow of the game uh, while they were playtesting. Now, they introduced a few fixes to this. Does it actually play smoothly now, or is it still a bit juddery? Uh, I think it's plays just fine. One issue, I guess, could come up, and that really is something I would have to play a couple more times to, to, to see how that plays out, is as you build the decks um, from a subset of the available cards... There are certain elements in the game like zombies or vampires or anything else that may or may not come out. And the game, in terms of the pace and, and the kind of interaction that takes place, is slightly dependent on the combination of cards that do come out. So it's kind of hard to judge at this point because I've only played it a couple of times. But I think some of the poor experiences, if you're unlucky and you know a, a weird combination of cards come out, you might just not, you know, have the most fun experience straight away. But it's definitely one you'd want to try a couple of times before you judge your whole play experience on, uh, you know, on a certain set of cards coming out. Okay, cool. So just to sum up for us on a study in Emerald, Puria, why do you think everyone should play it? I think it's just a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, classic example in our game was we had uh, Sherlock Holmes come out, turned into a vampire, and then eaten by Cthulhu. And just that experience alone is, is something I think that will appeal to a lot of people. It's um, got that hidden role mechanic, which I think a lot of people enjoy as well. It's got deck building, which um, you know I don't typically enjoy in its pure form with Dominion. But I think in this case, it adds to the game. It works. It makes sense. And yeah, it just creates really great, fun gaming experiences. <laughs> So for the next part of the show, we are just going to do a rundown of our 12 days of gaming. These are the 12 greatest things about gaming this year for us and what we've got to be so thankful for in this fantastic hobby of ours. Yeah, it's been a really great year for us this year and I suppose these are the things that have stood out for us. Okay, so on the 12th day of gaming, we got the game The Resistance. Now, what this represents is social gaming in general. And The Resistance, I've played it over 100 times this year. Sean's played quite a few games of it. I'm not sure that mechanically it's the greatest game in the world, but it's a fantastic social game and a social tool. And it's the ability for 8 or 10 people to get around the table, chat, interact, laugh, joke, lie to each other, and generally 
get to know each other better than you would do playing a lot of other games where a lot of the interaction is based solely on the board and there's a lot of thinking going on and you're not so much chatting to each other, looking each other in the eye and getting to know each other so well. Yeah, exactly what Ryan said. Uh, from going down to London on board and not really knowing anyone apart from Ronan, it was the games of resistance that I actually started meeting people rather than the two, three, four people at a time that I was meeting and playing some serious Euro thinky games when people tend to have their, their eyes down on the table thinking about what they're doing anyway. So yeah, great method of meeting all the people of London on board and quite a fun game to go with it as well. Cool. So for the 11th day of gaming, we got the Eastbourne convention it's LobsterCon when 65 or 70 gamers head down from london to eastbourne on the south coast of the uk now sean's yet to come along to an eastbourne so this is very much a personal one but i wanted to put it in there because twice a year we head down there and for four days we take over a whole hotel and it really is probably the highlight of the gaming calendar for me because eastbourne is everything to all gamers if you want to go there and play advanced civilization for 12 hours you'll find people to do that if you want to go there and play a couple of light games and then go have a couple of drinks and some lovely food in the restaurants around the place there will be people that want to do that if you want to get up at six in the morning and play early morning games there'll be people doing that if you want to stay up till seven in the morning playing drunken games of werewolf there will be people doing that it is whatever you want to make it it's a great time to relax being in the company of other gamers is a great thing because you have the shared vocabulary, the shared experiences, and you know that when you start talking about something, people know what you're talking about. Yeah, as Renan said, I haven't managed to get down to an Eastbourne yet, but it's definitely on my radar. If they'll have me, I'd love to go one time. It just sounds like absolute bliss. Moving on, on the 10th day of gaming, the game eclipse was given to us or to me in particular it was the year that i first got to play this wonderful game i absolutely love it i even as i was mocked by ronan entered it as the must-have game on the dice tower episode zero and was quite rightly mocked it's probably not a game for everyone but it's a game for me and i absolutely love it and i mean i played eclipse when it came out i've played it a couple of times since then I think it's a fantastic game. It's right up around my top 10. And lucky old me, I actually got given it by my board game geek, Secret Santa, this year. And I'm super happy about that. So Eclipse is also a great highlight for me because it kind of represents that community spirit there is amongst gamers and the Secret Santas and the helping each other out that you get. On the ninth day of gaming, the UK Games Expo was given to me. It was the very first ever gaming expo con whatever you want to call it that i attended and i absolutely loved it it gave me the taste for things like essen but we'll talk about that later it's a great day out or a great couple of days out there's lots of panels about gaming lots of things to do lots of competitions going on a great dealers hall with lots of nice bargains and all the all the famous all the names that you see like leisure games and games law are all there and it's a just chance to get together not as much as eastbourne is for 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 us as a london on board but definitely a time to get together with friends and play some games and just have a gaming day out yeah it's it's a great day to go and visit and again just be amongst gamers have some fun try some new games and 
just enjoy yourself and kick back and enjoy the hobby and it really shows how the hobby is growing in the UK every year it gets slightly bigger and slightly bigger and again another one of those events that is what you make of it if you want to be part of the serious competition gaming go ahead and do it if you're there hunting out a bargain you'll find loads especially the bring and buy sale if you just want to sit down and play loads of games there's halls there to do that just a nice lovely day out just to enjoy games and on the eighth day of gaming, Zombicide was given to me and us, as it turns out. I have to give a big shout out to my wonderful wife for this one. She kickstarted Zombicide as a birthday present for me. Uh, that's the Zombicide Season 2, but she also included Zombicide Season 1, which I didn't have. I'm a huge, huge fan of all zombie-related things. Big fan of The Walking Dead comics, etc. Uh, George A. Romero, always been a fan, and... For me, it seems like Zombicide is the best zombie-themed game out there. And when this massive box full of all zombie-themed stuff with all the extras that it give you for Kickstarter, and it is the good side of Kickstarter for me, that these guys delivered on time and loads and loads of extras thrown in there. And useful extras, not just random stuff. There's loads of good stuff that really enhance the game. Uh, the box was so big that my 18-month-old son actually made a little camp out of it and sat in it for an hour. So, Ronan, you've also got a Zombicide story. Yeah, I was given Zombicide for Christmas as well by my family and sat down and played it with my daughter and my nephew and my brother and we had great fun. And it kind of represents the fact that as we all do, we evangelize a little bit about this hobby. I'm trying to get some of the family into it. My nephew loves games. My kids love games. And the fact that we really enjoyed the game and my kids and my nephews growing up and we're able to play slightly more advanced games and really grow into the hobby with them. And it's surprisingly fun, I have to say. <laughs> I'm not the zombie fan that Sean is, but this one's a, a nice, light zombie game. And I'm really happy to have got it. On the seventh day of gaming, what we got was perhaps a lightning bolt of common sense. And uh, our gift on the seventh day is a lack of Kickstarter. Now, there are positives. As Sean said, the you know, Zombie Side had a great experience. I've had great experiences with the likes of Sentinels of the Multiverse. But there's just a little bit too much for us of the negative side of Kickstarter. It's too stressful, there's been too many disasters, um, too many letdowns, and in this year, I think is the year we've both decided that we're just going to pull way back on Kickstarter projects, and if you want us to back something now in terms of board games, it's going to have to be something absolutely spectacular. Um, too many times things have been said that haven't turned out to be true, or games haven't been delivered at all in Sean's case, or late and with hassle and what have you in my case, so... I'm afraid we've had to let kickstarting board games go and live more of a stress-free life on the seventh day of gaming. Sean? Yeah, as you said, Ronan, it's it's unfortunate. I think it's a really, really good platform for the independents to to get their game out there and push it push it across the globe, really. But I think it is being abused slightly by by certain elements and there's games out there, as Ronan said, I've, I've backed a game in 2012 that I'm still, I still believe hasn't even been manufactured or isn't even been ready to be manufactured. So it's, it, I know it's a gamble, but still there is a certain expectation and it, I don't think it always meets it. Okay, right, let's go back on a more positive note. On the sixth day of gaming, we got 
better game components. I think this is true all across the market. We are seeing games that are not just strong mechanically, but probably one of the positives actually of Kickstarter is that games won't really get noticed in a saturated market as it is now unless they have got good components to go along with solid mechanisms and we are seeing lovely beautiful looking board games coming out again and again and again and the average standard is now way above what it was 10 years ago and as much as anything else, we enjoy the physical part of playing board games. One of the reasons why we play board games as opposed to video games, what have you. And when the components are nice and of high quality, it does increase the enjoyment of the game, especially for Sean. So just happy that games are looking better and better, better components, making them even more fun to play. There was a time when it was really the likes of Fantasy Flight, Days of Wonder, people like that that were producing these really good-looking games with solid components. And as well as said, it does it enhances the the game. If you're playing with a few bits of cardboard pushing it around, it doesn't really have the same effect as if you've got miniatures, wooden blocks, whatever it is they go with. And Kickstarter has actually promoted the the likes of Francis Drake and Zombicide have, have come out of this and they are stunning, stunning games. So definitely the positive of Kickstarter. Okay, on the fifth day of gaming, we got Games of Dixit. Now, we're going to use Dixit in particular, but this represents getting together with people of all ages and playing games. Dixit we use, and we've mentioned it lots of times on the show, because we happen to play this with the kids and the family, and they love it, and it's really very entertaining and funny, and hearing the crazy stories they come up with from the uh, kind of funky art that you get in the Dixit sets. We've got them all. We've just got number four, and getting around the table and having fun, and everyone loves Dixit in the house now. It represents that gaming can bring people together in a certain way and especially families and young kids in this case. Yeah, I think Dixit is the king for that because it really does bring bring you even closer together as a family. You have to understand people, really, to play Dixit well and to get the most out of it. And, it, yeah, it's a game that I always recommend. Recently at Christmas, uh, somebody on Facebook asked me for a really interactive family game. I suggested Dixit. They bought it, and they've just, a couple of days actually ago, thanked me for, for the recommendation, said they've, they've had a wonderful time, and they've now recommended it on so it's just a wonderful tool for interacting with your family and so on the fourth day of gaming london on board was given to to me specifically this year ronan was a little bit of an earlier attendee and i finally got down to to london on board i was a bit nervous uh, as you always are going into a, a new area with new people around but what a welcoming place, a great day out. It's now one of the biggest, if not the biggest, gaming clubs in the world. And, yeah, just really welcoming people, really well organized, in a great location, and uh, looking forward to many more visits. Uh, yeah, I've been heading down there for a while now. Lucky enough to be able to attend fairly regularly and uh, help host the odd session here and there. It's a fantastic community. It's kind of a home for gaming in London, if you like. We have so many new people come in, either new gamers or visitors, and we have designers come through, and we have our core of regulars like most game groups do. And whatever type of game you want to play, you're going to be able to play down there. Stick it up on the meetup site, and someone will want to join in. 
It's I've made friends out of it. Um, it's really my home now for gaming and going along and having fun. It's a great place to go. So London on board, you're awesome. On the third day of gaming, we got much to our pleasure good superhero themed games. It seems incredible to the both of us that until relatively recently, you couldn't find a good superhero game. It's just amazing. It seems like the two parts, the two hobbies, the two interests are so overlapped. And yet, all you had Marvel Heroes, which was an okay game. We played that a couple of times. But suddenly, we're having this rush of games, the likes of Sentinels of the Multiverse, DC Deck Build, and Legendary, which we covered all in our superhero special. You've also got the likes of Hero Metro City coming out. And just generally, there's more super hero themed things going on with like the batman releases that came out this year it's great we love the superhero theme i played city of heroes the mmo for years sean loves comic books of course the superhero movies that's been coming out recently has been part of this and i love most of them as well maybe not green lantern sorry sean but it's just for us on a personal level to have two of our interests coming together in superhero theme and board games it's just fantastic sean yeah, long may it continue. I can't believe that the two didn't really marry together earlier because you'd think sort of geeks like board games, geeks like like uh, comics, and surely the two would unite at some stage. But it's taken a while, and it's probably taken this glut of superhero movies to make it happen. But definitely there's a niche in the market. All the superhero games, be they good or bad, they do, they do fly off the shelves. There's even a... a Quarriers style dice game coming out with the Marvel theme on it now, so it's it's great. I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I look I look forward to more releases. So, on to the the number two on the second day of gaming, Essen was given to us. Again, my first time in Essen. Ronan's been a couple of times before, but oh, it is it's gaming. It's just a gaming hub of the universe for me. I spent the first day walking around with my mouth open and just completely agog at everything that was going on. There's just so much to comprehend. The gaming goodness that's just everywhere, as far as the eye can see. These halls are massive, and it's just game after game to be tested, bargains everywhere. There's LARP stuff in, in one of the halls. There's comic stuff going on, collectibles. All the stuff that makes me happy. It's just a wonderful, wonderful time. And I can't wait to go again next year to the point where I've already booked my hotel. It is is amazing. It is Christmas for gamers. It's so massive. I know everyone says it, but you have to see it to believe it. You can't just talk about it in terms of dimensions. Because the fact is there's a glut of games every few feet as you walk around the place. There's so much to see. There's so much to do. You're never going to see everything. You're never going to get to do everything. And it is, it's just exciting. We spend months preparing beforehand, don't we? We look at all these games that are coming out. We go over them. We got our preview shows ready, but that's stuff we would have been doing anyway, just to try and decide which of the 800 plus games to buy. It's tiring but fantastic. It gives us a glut of new games to play for months and months and months afterwards. And really, if you want to be at the heart of gaming in Europe, you just have to be at Essen. It is so much fun. Incredible. Essen, long may it continue. 
And finally, on the first day of gaming, and excuse the self-indulgence, the game pit was given to us. Back in March of 2013, we decided that we could have a crack at this podcast lark. Now, it was a slow start. I think we're getting better, but some may beg to differ. And we've just had so much fun over the year doing this. It's hard work, but it's definitely rewarding. And just to know that even a handful of people are enjoying what we're doing is is reward for us. Absolutely. We did this for fun. It's something that we decided we wanted to do to just share the sort of chat we have about games amongst ourselves and other people. We didn't really expect much out of it. And we've been so lucky. We get emails all the time from people saying how they enjoy it and sometimes you know how we can improve which is great as well we interact with people on twitter i have people come up to me in person and chat to us about it we've as you heard this episode some of our friends are getting involved in it which we always intended to happen uh we know we're not perfect but we enjoy doing it and we're really glad that you enjoy listening so the game pit has just been fantastic to be part of and there we have it our 12 days of gaming talk about the games that are new to us in 2013 but not necessarily released in 2013 i'm going to lead off with my number three which is the dc comics deck building game now i do understand that this is a bit of a strange choice it's designed by matt hira and ben stoll and from cryptozoic entertainment and it plays two to five players it's a very very simple deck building game there's only the, the two resources in it completely. All you're doing is you've got a base character that gives you a little bit of a bonus and you're going to be collecting heroes and villains and equipment and superpowers. That's all you're doing in this game. It's a very, very stunningly good looking game in terms of the card art is from the DC New 52 range and it's all really, really beautiful artwork on the cards. As I said, it's not a really deep deck builder. It's not a Dominion. It's not even an Ascension. Ascension has got more elements to it. It's a much more simplified version, but I just find it incredibly fun. I love comic books. I love the DC world. I love the fact that I can go out and pick up Clayface or Robin and the Flash and I can bring these characters into my card deck. There are certain ways you can go. You can go down the villain route, you can go down the equipment route, etc. There are cards that stay with you and stay out in front. These are location cards that give you an ongoing bonus, much like your base character does. That's it, really. There's not a lot more to say about it. The main criticism of this game from people is that they don't like the way Superman can get Batman's Batmobile. And Aquaman can be in the same deck as the Joker. And people don't like that. I don't, it doesn't bother me. So I just see it as Superman's helping out Batman or whatever. It doesn't bother me. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed this game. It's very, very simple fun. And 
I gave loads of games of this and I continue to enjoy it. I don't think it's that controversial a choice, Sean. I think it's a perfectly decent game that does exactly what it sets out to do. Just like you said, it's a real quick, simple deck builder. You're done and dusted in under half an hour. There are plenty more games out there that last for half an hour that have way less choice or interest or fun than this does it feel definitely feels a niche i actually got it for one of my daughters for christmas this year she's gonna love it i like the theme i like the fact that it's lighter than ascension because it takes out any of the nonsense and keeps it completely streamlined does the job good game okay Roland, on to your number three choice my number three choice is a 2012 release from christian markerson and that's clash of cultures which is for two to four players, you're talking anywhere from an hour, if it's the game is shortened by someone being eliminated, way up to about four or five hours of play here. It's a game about building up your own civilization over time, developing a tech tree, creating an economy, collecting resources, using those resources to develop your cities, and also very much the name clashes in there, having fights with either barbarian forces that come into the game or hopefully the other players, because that's when it's most fun, when it's played as a 4x game with plenty of fights it very much captures a lot of the feeling of the civilization computer games in my opinion better than the actual civilization uh, fantasy flight game i haven't tried the old civilization or advanced civilization so i can't really comment on what they're like as civ building games very much rewards interaction it's done the trick of rarely being frustrating you always feel like there are options in this game. In my very last game of it, on the first three tiles I drew around myself, I was on a tiny island. Well, instead of being stuck there and realised that I completely lost the game, all that meant was that I had to develop more towards having more of a naval power. And in fact, that sea grew. And because I had the biggest navy, I had a big advantage in the ability to drop in and out and take people's cities off them. So it never bogs down. You never feel like you've been hampered by something small in the game. You can make bad choices, but if you make a bad choice, you make a bad choice and you're going to get punished for that choice. It's not perfect, but I tell you what, it's as close to perfect of a 4X building your civilization game as I have found so far. And also the good news is it's about to be expanded. And some of people's complaints about this base game are going to be dealt with you're going to get varying cultures to start with you're going to bring in different units for the fights and what have you i hope it maintains this pretty streamlined fun interactive flavor of clash of cultures yeah great choice ronan i myself again played this for the first time this year and it's a really nasty game it's, it's very simple of what you do but it's so in your face it's quite a nasty game it's it, as you say it, it really encourages that interaction with each civilization across around the playing space because you have to do it. You pretty much have to do it unless you get blocked off, which you had a nice little game <laughs> recently of where you got completely blocked off with water and it took you a little while to get into the game. But other than that, you've got to just go out there and start attacking people and start getting amongst people and influencing other people's cities. Again, it's something you touched on. It is the game that I feel that the Sid Meier's Fantasy Flight Civilization, the board game, should have been. I do enjoy that game, and I did enjoy that game up to the point where I played Clash of Cultures. Then I thought, you know what? 
this is probably the civilization building game that I've been waiting for. Nothing against that game, but I think this one just does everything a little bit better, and it's a lot closer to the actual video game. Great news on the upcoming expansion because that was one of the issues for me is that each player didn't have their own faction their own sort of identity as ron said you can't go too much into that because it will take away from this, this sort of streamlined effect to this game but yeah great choice well done thank you very much we need to stop <laughs> agreeing with each other this is most ungame pit like um sean i'd love to disagree with you on this next choice your number two but i simply can't go on hit us with it yeah, I was about to say, there's no way you're going to disagree with the next one either. It is the classic Tigris and Euphrates from Rainier Knizia by Mayfair Games. If anybody needs an explanation, it's a tile placement area control game where players are looking to control the areas and build up routes using randomly drawn tiles. And there are also four leaders that are used to collect the points and battle other players. This game is extremely interactive. You're always messing with people you're always getting into other people's business because that's the game you're always looking to link up your big city with all your blue tiles down where you've got control of it to try and maybe get onto somebody else's city where they don't have as many blue wherever there's a connection on the board you're going to have a fight between anybody who's got the same colors the scoring is probably one of the best ways of just keeping everybody thinking i've ever seen in the game in as much as it's your lowest score of each of the four colors it's the lowest one that you have is going to be your final score so you can't just race ahead and get loads of red points or loads of green points you have to balance it you're always thinking right okay i've got some of those i need some of these desperately otherwise that's going to be my weak link you can't have a weak link in this game and it, it just keeps it right up to the last it keeps you thinking there is a little bit of luck with the tile draws ronan will tell you but again i think that keeps you on your toes because you're constantly having to rethink how you're going to do things if you desperately need red to start attacking people and taking stuff and you're not getting them then you have to just come up with a new way of doing it you've got to do something different do you just spend all your all your green tiles just to get them out of there have a, have a green battle here you go smash that get rid of them get some more tiles into my hand do you actually start thinking i can build something with these green tiles there's there's always something to do i can't believe it's taken me this long to play this game it is a classic ronan's been ranting on that i should play this for ages it just doesn't look appealing i think is the reason i put it down to not playing this but i finally managed it and i've absolutely adored it absolute stone cold classic in this one year we've been doing, well, all nine months we've been doing the game pit, we've only put two games into our vault for the best of the best. This was one of them for a really good reason. It's in my top five games of all time. I'm so happy you finally played it. I didn't think you were enjoying it, that first game, because you were so quiet and deep in thought, as it turns out. And when you turn around, I thought, oh, he hasn't enjoyed it. Oh, he doesn't like it as much as I do. When you turn around and said you enjoyed it, I was so happy because this is just a brilliant, brilliant game. It is Knizia at his best when he's at the height of his powers. So much fun, so nasty, so mean, and yet so much to think about. Just an absolutely amazing, amazing game. Fantastic choice. I believe you're coming from left field in your next choice, Ronan. You're number two. 
Uh, not so much left field, my friend. Maybe left bank. This is Leader One, Hell of the North. It's 2011 release. It's from Christophe Leclerc and Alain Ollier. It's for two to amazingly ten players, and it is a simulation of a professional cycling race. Now, I don't think there's that many good race games out there or that many good sports games out there. So for a racing sports game to get to my number two new to me is really something special. And this is a fantastic game. It's amazing. If you know anything at all about cycling, you're going to be so happy with how well this has reproduced things like team orders, specific riders, how different terrains affect a race, how you can use all the bits to come in this box to build a proper stage race with energy carried over which is the main sort of resource in the game that you use to race it's people have used the components in this to show you how to recreate the whole tour de france from this year for example it is just brilliant if you want to play it for 45 minutes play a quick one stage game if you want to play it for 20 stages over weeks and weeks it is just as rewarding to do that it's so much fun it reproduces the effect of weather it reproduces the effect of team orders it reproduces the effect of sprint zones and hard climbs and the peloton and you can go for early breaks and the peloton are gradually going to cut you down or you can try and time it for a sprint out the pack towards the end it genuinely feels like you're running your own team of specialist cyclists it's just so much fun. It's great to see how interactive it is. When one person puts out his cyclist from a team, you can leech on the back of them and draft and be in their slipstream. But at some point, you're going to have to work together. Otherwise, everyone else is going to catch you. All of that intrigue that you get in a great cycling race, you get in this, a great board game. I love the theme. I think it really recreates the sport extremely well. And it is just easy to teach and easy to play, yet deep. Great, great game. Leader one, hell of the north. Sean? So you say that fans of cycling will really appreciate that the depth they've gone into in this game. Now, do you have to be a fan or even understand cycling to get the most out of this game? Well, I think actually that's probably the whole beauty of the game. When I say it's recreate the whole sport, it maybe makes it sound like it's some kind of deep, intricate spreadsheet kind of a game that is the amazing trick it pulls off it's not that it is a playable board game a resource management game which will manage in one resource which is energy it is a race game that anyone can play all the rules make sense what they've done is though if you are a fan of cycling you're just gonna be able to pull those bits and bobs out of it and go oh wow look how they've done that how clever how simple but how clever how thematically effective to just do that little tweak on it you don't need to know what these things are representing but if you do it just makes it that even better i kind of i liken it to a joss whedon film you if you don't know anything about sort of geek culture or what have you you enjoy the film if you know or get some of those references it just gives you those little things that you're pulling out going oh yeah he's put that in for us well this is the same great game standalone if you don't know anything about cycling really great game if you do know anything about cycling, it's just got those little touches in there, little smooth touches that make you go, brilliant. They, they know the sport and they've done fantastically. Yeah, I have to agree. This game looks really pretty on, on the board. And that modular board, as you said, it just gives you so much variety. People have actually re- recreated, as you said, again, the 
the actual stages of the Tour de France and various other tours from across Europe and and the Americas. Yeah, it just gives you so much replayability and it's not just a simple race game. It's very much resource management when you get down to it. If you're talking about just the mechanics, let's get away from the themes. It's definitely, you've got to manage your resources very carefully. It's a very thinky game, but still manages to be fun because you've got that interaction with because you are basically racing against other people. So yeah, an interesting choice and I wasn't, I didn't see it coming, but yeah, good one. Nice. Leader One, Head of the North, will take over the board gaming world. I'm sure of it. Everyone I play it with loves it. It's got a huge average rating on Board Game Geek. It's just got hardly any any ratings. It's almost rated as an average 8 out of 10, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I'm on to my number one, and it's another behemoth of a game. It's Eclipse from Tuco Takokalio. really apologize for the pronunciation there. And it's from Lotapolit.com. .fi and it's two to six players. In Eclipse, each player takes control of an interstellar civilization and you're exploring star systems, you're building up space stations and spaceships and also researching technologies. It's a space economy game with some exploration and combat thrown in. Now, whenever I'm trying to describe to somebody why it is that I think Eclipse is so good. I just say that it all makes sense. And that so rarely happens in games. You're always thinking, but okay, why does that do that? And you have to sort of get into the mindset of the game. No, not with this one. You do this because that affects that. And you're like, oh yeah, of course it does. That just makes sense. Everything fits together. It shouldn't do. There's lots to do in this game. But it all just fits together. You learn this game once and it does stick because, yeah, there you go. Again, it all makes sense. Now, the economy side to this game is just, is it's all me. I love my economy games. I love building up my, my economy in a game and building up my strategy. And I don't often like being interfered with while I'm building my strategy, but you can in this game, but it's, it's it brings that, interaction again with other players and the combat is very very simply done but as i said you you have to bear it in mind because people are going to be invading your space and they are going to be messing with your economy there are various routes that you can take to go to victory in this one there isn't a definite winning strategy i love that about the game and i'm not going to waffle on too much about this one I'm delighted I played this game this year. I finally got around to it, and I absolutely adored it. It's my number one choice. Ronan, what's your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I think that what you've got with Eclipse is something similar to Clash of Cultures in that it's taken a 4X game, simplified it, yet it's still got depth. But even more so, even to a greater degree, it's so smooth to play. It's got a great balancing factor in the interaction between the players. It's really interesting the way the table play works out, how you have to react, how different people taking different um, upgrades affects how you can go. It just really feels like a deep, meaty experience where you're sitting down and really trying to get through a huge forex experience. But every single part of it makes sense. They all work together beautifully. It's all been oiled and just ticks along like a finely tuned engine. 
really a fantastic amazing game i knew you'd love it sean you're gonna love it even more with your new ship pack i just think great choice great game eclipse wonderful although you still got mocked in the dice tower for choosing it as the game everyone should own <laughs> thanks for reminding me of that <laughs> I stand by my nonsense. Anyway, <laughs> moving to, moving on, Ronan, what's your number one choice? The uh, new to me one. Okay, so you've gone from a massive multi-hour game, which you can have I don't know, nine players or something playing nowadays with the expansion. I'll take us back to a two-player asymmetric little game called Dos de Mayo. It's from Daniel Val, released by Gen X and Griffin Games from 2008. Definitely one that I'd heard of, but had really flown under my radar. i kind of been interested to try it. I saw it lots of times in the shops and never picked it up. Then a friend of mine introduced me to it this spring, and I absolutely adored it. It's based around the incidents, we call them, that happened in Madrid on May the 2nd, 1808, when civilians and Spanish army rebelled against the occupation of Napoleon's French troops and things got very nasty indeed and there was loss of life and it was all a bit of a difficult time. Now in this game you're either going to be playing the Spanish civilians and army who are rebelling and are very much the overwhelmed and outgunned faction or you're going to be playing the French army who are going to be coming into the city attempting to restore order who very much have the upper hand in terms of number of units and firepower and what have you. The difference in this is that the two teams have got different win conditions. So the French player has to have eliminated all of the Spanish forces um, and not lost any more than four of his units. Otherwise, the Spanish player wins. So it's almost your you've got a symbolic victory there for the Spanish because they've shown their rebellion and their resistance against the occupying French forces. Whereas the French have to play a bit more of a perfect game, which means... Although they outgun the Spanish, they have to be very careful when and where they engage. Um, in terms of the Spanish units, you are going to be writing down your orders on a piece of paper secretly, sort of letters of Whitechapel style, both sides do that. And the Spanish are looking to spread out, use back alleys, create a bit of trouble and generally slow down the French during the 10 turns. And the French players trying to herd the Spanish uh, together because if you get Spanish cubes moving together, then it makes them easier to catch because it's not easy for them to split up again. There are also event cards which come out and into the hand of the players every turn and some of them are actually good for your team and some of them are bad for your team, but you have to force to play them sometimes. So very interesting decisions to be made as to when to give something away to the other player and hold something back for yourself and kind of keep your powder dry in certain cases. It feels really thematic. It really feels like when you're the Spanish, you are scrambling around and trying to avoid capture and just trying to stay alive. And it really feels as the French, like you are attempting to gain control, but you've only got a limited amount of time to do that in. And you don't want to engage too recklessly, lest you use those four units. Full of tough decisions. And both sides feel like it's pretty hard to win, which is exactly, as we said with Invaders, how these games should sound. And it's really very tense again. It's a lovely, it's a quick playtime, you know, around half an hour. Lovely, tense, quick, little two-player asymmetric game. It's Dos de Mayo. It's my best new-to-me game, 2013. Sean? I haven't actually managed to play this one, Ronan, as you know. And... I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions that basically encapsulate my concerns about the game. Now, the first one would be, 
the cubes. You play with cubes, red and blue cubes. One representing the Spanish, and one colour representing the Spanish, and one colour representing the French. Now, are these too abstract? Can you really imagine the French trying to corner the Spanish, or is it really just moving blue cubes to take red cubes? Well, let me tell you. Once you start playing this game, those cubes become very, very precious to you. As the Spanish, you have so few that losing one hurts. It honestly does because it restricts the kind of areas in which you can faint and and fake away from the French. And as the French, because you can only lose up to four. If you lose four, you've lost. Losing one and you're a quarter of the way towards losing the game. So you care about these cubes. I get that they are a bit abstract, but it's a case of, I think we talked about dominant species before, where with the components, because there's an awful lot of thought going into each move. You want to keep the components simple when you look at that board so that you're thinking about your decisions, not trying to decipher what the components mean. Exactly the same here. I think it was a good choice to keep them stark and bold and for both teams to be able to look at the map and see exactly what the options are because the Spanish are trying to make their moves to kind of fake the French and go in an unexpected direction. And the French are constantly trying to anticipate where the Spanish are going. So you both have to be aware of all of the options available to the two of you so that you can be involved in outwitting each other rather than worrying or missing something simple on the board, which gives the other person a chance to escape out of your trap or what have you. And it could be really important. So I think the clarity of information is more important than the bling in this case. Yeah, I can I can see that from reading through the rule book. This game is absolutely steeped in the history of this event, uh, to the point where it even tells you that the Spanish finally had enough when the French forces started removing the royalty from the palace, and that's when it all kicked off. You can, I, I can get that. I can see that. Yeah, those cubes become the the, the factions fighting each other. Now. My other issue with this is, does it sit in its own niche, really? Does it sit too nicely in between a war game and a Euro-style game for fans of each to fully appreciate it? In all honesty, it doesn't really feel like either. It feels more like, you know, again, you wouldn't call Letters from Whitechapel a Euro game or a war game. It's something different. It's a hidden movement deduction game. And that's kind of what this is, but with some theme thrown in there. It's not really a war game because when the French meet the Spanish, they're going to win. It's much more about outwitting your opponent and utilising what you have available to you in the most kind of not really efficient way, but probably the cleverest way, I would say. I don't think it's either. I think it's its own type of game. Lovely. So there we have it. That's our top three new to me choices for 2013. Hey, uh, it's Bonnie Kate and my best new to me game this year was the game of thrones living card game um the game of thrones living card game allows you to play as one of six houses uh from the game of thrones book series slash television show um and you have a deck of cards that you can add things into take things out of that's why it's a living card game and you attempt to get to 15 points before um any other house and ideally murder lots and lots of other people while at it it's pretty much the whole theme of game of thrones is murder right yes absolutely okay um <laughs> and this... betrayal <laughs> and betrayal and nice things um this is a huge game there's so many cards out it's quite complex especially for a card game with all the three there's three different ways of attacking and there's 
locations you can build up and there's characters and you can put attachments on characters and you've got plots there's so much going on is there much of a barrier to entry for new players into a game of thrones living card game yes i think the biggest barrier for this game is that you when you're playing it for the first time it doesn't matter whether you've seen game of thrones so much what matters is if you have somebody who's explaining the game properly that is the most important part because luckily for me the first time i played Ronan was explaining it to me, and our first game lasted three hours, um, which was about <laughs> twice as long as it should have done, because I was being a bit lengthy in my decision making, but you, as a new player, you're inclined to look at everything and want to assess everything, but you just can't, and you just need to hope that the person who's teaching you is kind of pointing things out that are important, and what's happening to you so that you can understand for the next game, because the first game is essentially a throwaway, just to see some cards and what can happen you're not selling it very well a three-hour game in which you're definitely going to lose <laughs> that's what it is man <laughs> okay um this game plays two three or four player what do you reckon is the best player count i think the best player count is four it allows the greatest amount of balance and it allows you to recoup once you've been hit because typically once you're doing really well everyone will attack you and then you'll be back down to, you know, two points um, from your glorious 13. And um, with four, you get ignored a bit then, and then you can build up, build up, build up until you, you know, are decimated once more. Um, but four is great because you really do get to see how multiple houses interact. And I think having lots of players like that is much more interesting. Okay. There's another version of the game available, which is called Game of Thrones card game, which has got fixed decks, it's two-player only, and is much quicker. What does this offer that that doesn't? Because that looks like a more attractive package on the outside, I'd say. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the two-player card game. I've, I've played it probably 20 times, somewhere around there, and I just find that the decks are fairly predictable as to what you need to do. Um, with regards to being either Lannister or Stark House, whereas with the living card game, because you can mix the decks, because there's more variety in what's happening during the game, you can go up and down so much. Whereas in the living card or in the two-player card game, essentially what happens is you start to lose, it gets really rough, and you can't bring yourself back up because you're fighting one other person. There's no one else to direct their attention away from you. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah, once one player gets the edge, it tends to be a bit of a runaway. I haven't yeah. played too many tight games of that, a Game no. of Thrones uh, two-player version. Have you got a favourite house you'd like to play? Yeah, I love playing the Baratheon house, actually. Um, I like being the Baratheons because they're one of the strategies that you can do with their deck is getting points on character cards. And so you build up all these characters in front of you, and I like it because it tells a story and you get attached to those characters who have you know, five or six points, and if they die, then you want to smother the person who killed them. I like it when you're playing Baratheon because it's funnier when you kill those characters off. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why should everyone play a Game of Thrones different card game? Everyone should try uh, Game of Thrones because it's just a brilliant game. Is that, can I say that? I mean, it's, it's just great. It's, there's a lot of intrigue, and the strategies are completely different for all the different houses, but also it's a game that you can really get into the workings of and changing up the decks allows you to try different things, but also based on what cards you're being allocated, you might not have, you know, all those characters that are, you know, 
point scoring and so you have to change what you're doing based on what you have and so you have to think on your feet and that's interesting in a game that's so long that you have to be spontaneous hi it's lloyd here my favorite game that was new to me this year is leader one hell of the north that came out in 2011 it is a cycling racing game racing across the streets of northern europe it is a racing game for two to four players though you can play in teams with up to 10 players i wouldn't necessarily recommend it uh, it is a simulation of team cycling. Okay, lovely. So so I already spoke about Leader One Head of the North Lloyd. It's one of my favourite games of this year. So everyone knows I'm quite enthusiastic about it. Do you think there's ever been a better sports board game or tabletop game? I don't think so. I mean, I've played a handful of sports-based games. So the likes of Blood Bowl, Pizza Box Football... Uh, does Ave Caesar count? I mean, you're racing slaves and some of them are dying. Does that count as a sport? Who knows? Uh, of all of the sports-based games I've played, a lot of them have uh, huge amounts of luck in them. A lot of the racing games particularly have huge amounts of luck in them. Leader One is overwhelmingly strategy. There is some luck in it, but I think by far and away it is the best sports game, and I would go so far as to say one of the best games. This game is really pretty to look at, and every time it's brought out on the table, someone goes, "What's that? Why doesn't why don't more people know about this, Lloyd?" Because it's about cycling, and in the world of board gaming, which is pretty nerdy anyway, let's be honest, cycling is even nerdier than most board games are. It's like taking an 18xx game or a war game out. Even the board gamers look at you and go, "What the hell is that?" Um, it is a shame. I mean, it, it turned me off for a long time. I bought the game originally because Alan Ollier has done a lot of interesting games. He's done a couple of bidding games that I enjoyed, uh, the boss being one of them. And so this was the next game of his that I didn't own, and I bought it purely off of the designer. Uh, and it sat on my shelf for three or four months because it was a cycling game, and I have no interest at all in cycling. But I wanted to see what he'd done, uh, what systems and mechanisms he brought into this game. Uh, so, Lloyd, what, who does this appeal to? Is it a gateway game? Is it a medium or is it a heavy Euro? It's it's a medium Euro game. Uh, Euro game is perhaps even the wrong term, but it's it's a game of having one essential resource, which is energy. You're you're trying to manipulate the other riders around you and your position in the race and conserve as much energy as possible. Doing anything that pulls you away from the uh, the pack or having to catch up with the pack burns through your energy quickly. And so that, that one resource is the be-all and end-all of the game and is absolutely vital. So there's a lot of thought required in there. There is a, a relatively small amount of luck in the game, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a particularly heavy game. It can take 30 to 40 minutes to play a race, though quite often with us, and uh, takes you backsies. It can easily take up to an hour or two. Okay, but we said so we weren't going to pick on Puria during this segment, didn't we? We pick on Puria during everything. That's what we do. Okay. Now... Clearly, I'm a big fan of it. You're a big fan of it. Tell everyone why they should get past that cycling thing if they're not a big fan of cycling and play Leader One, Head of the North. Because everybody should have a race game in their collection. Racing games are the kind of things that you can all just sit down and jump into and enjoy. And Leader One, Hell of the North is by far and away the best racing game out there. The winner won't be determined by who gets the best rolls of a die or who gets the lucky card draw at the right time the winner will almost certainly come down to the person who has played the best over the course of that race. Hi, it's Puri here, and uh, my new game to me for 2013 is Tuluva, originally published in 2006, published uh, and designed by Marcel Casalola Merkel, uh, and I apologise for butchering that name, recently republished both in 2012 
and I believe there's an edition coming out this year in 2013 as well uh, from Ferti Hansen Gluck and there may have been original production from Rio Grande as well. Tuluva is in essence a tarlane game. It represents a island archipelago being built up through volcanic eruptions. On your turn, you simply take a tile, you place it down and uh, expand settlements you have on the board. The aim of the game is to run out of two of the three types of settlements that each player has and is usually over within 20-30 minutes. Lovely. So... I know that it's kind of got this island theme, what have you, but is there really any theme? It does look very pretty, but is it just an abstract in very pretty clothes? I think the uh, theme does come through to some extent, mainly because unlike a lot of other Tarlane games, in this one, as the volcano expands, you can actually have the opportunity to build upwards as well as outwards. And that's visually actually quite striking. It makes a lot of sense in terms of the game mechanics and um, I think makes it slightly unique to a lot of other, you know, anything like, like Carcassonne or anything else where you will typically end up with a 2D sprawl. So one of the criticisms of this game, and to be fair, there are few of them, is that there aren't really enough strategy strategies to give this game real longevity. I can see, I think when you first play it, there are typically one or two strategies everyone picks up quite quickly. Uh, if you play it a lot, you actually start discovering that there's a few other uh, nifty little things that can be done, which aren't always apparent the first couple of times you play it. So even for experienced players, you know, they will get several dozen plays out of this. And especially for myself, it's found a fantastic niche because of the uh, both the ease of teaching the game and also the short play duration. So, you know, for something that plays 20, 30 minutes, there's a lot there. It typically, you know, is a great little filler to start the evening with and then you pack it away, you're done. So it's not something I would play, you know, 10 times in a row in an evening. So in that essence, it doesn't really outstay its welcome because it, you know, it just comes in, makes an occasional appearance and then, you know, back on the shelf. OK, cool. In terms of you saying there that with more experience and, and so, something I found myself as well, that the more plays you have, you start discovering there are different moves and there are different ways to get an edge over your different opponents. Do you feel like people who are experienced are always going to crush new players at this one? It is it is something where I think you do have a definite advantage over a new player. And oftentimes, you know, as an experienced player, well, depending on who you are, you might choose to dial it back in the first game as a teaching game. But most new players enjoy the game. It's short enough. So, you know, even if you're completely tranched, it's... It's over even quicker, so um, I think most people really don't mind. And by the second or third game, even new players have a good chance of winning, especially with three or four players where you have a certain amount of interaction where you can actually pick on an experienced player if you need to. So, Puria, this game has in the past been quite difficult to get hold of and prices of sort of upwards of 50 to 100 dollars have been mentioned on board game geek for people changing hands etc this is obviously your choice of your best new to you game of 2013 so how much would you pay for it um i wouldn't really pay more than you know the typical 20 30 40 pounds for it that i did but the issues i think that uh, came around with the scarcity are mainly driven by the fact that there was no release of the game 
from the original in 2006 until they reprinted it in 2012. But with that issue and also the new release in 2013, all those scarcity issues are really gone. So I don't think that's something you would need to ask yourself. It's not a Grail game by any means, and I would never have paid a lot of money for it. It's a great filler, but you know, ultimately it is just that a filler. Okay, lovely, mate. So do you want to just finish us off and tell everyone why everyone should play Tuluva? Tuluva is a unique... Uh, visually very pretty tile lane game. It's easy to teach. It plays great with new people. It's uh, even a great gateway game in terms of bringing on board people who may not have had other board game experience. It plays quickly and uh, yeah, why not? It's cheap. Hi, this is Terry. So my favourite new to me game this year that wasn't released in 2013 is Love Letter. I really like Love Letter because it's a quick, simple card game um, that's just really good fun. It's really good filler and I think it's really super easy to teach. You can kind of play it with anyone, whether they're gamers or brand new to gaming. So Terry, you said it yourself, it's a super easy game. Now, is it too easy and is it too simplistic and are there any real choices to make? I think there are real choices in it. Um, obviously, at the beginning of the game, you don't have very much information. And if you play a guard, you're just kind of hazard in the dark guessing. But later on, you know, you can kind of whittle it down. You can think, if they had that and that, what would they have played? You know, there's a bit of strategy going on. But it's not, yeah, I admit, it's not the most strategic game that I've played this year. So I think it's a fantastic choice, mate. I'm fully behind you on this one. So at least you made one good choice. Uh, important question. How many points is the correct amount to play to? And there is only one correct answer here. Well, I play by the rule book, Ronan, and I believe it's different amounts for different number of players. Two players, it's seven. That's why there's 13 cubes in the bag. And I think it's four cubes, four players, and maybe five cubes if it's three players. I'm disappointed and a little bit angry. Three cubes every time, man. Otherwise, it gets too long and boring. Yeah, but two players... That, see, that's not in the rules, though, is it? In the rules, it says two players, seven Sometimes cubes. Sometimes we've got to go off the rules, Terry, okay? But Sometimes two players, the seven... Book. It's for ripping up. Two players, seven cubes is a lot of fun because we have had... This is me and Nathan. Nathan won six cubes in a row, yeah? Six points in a row. And he was, like, laughing his head off. He was about to take seven for one. And then I won seven in a row. And that's hilarious. You're not going to have that hilarious fun if you only play to three cubes, are you? Seven that in a row, hilarious. though. It's mostly because it happened to Nathan. Yeah, no, he wasn't happy. Especially as he'd been doing a bit of a gloating. Uh, you know, let me just win this one. Oh, never mind, I'll just win the next one. And when it got to neck and neck, he started to look a bit pale. And I won the last one. It doesn't help that he picks the princess as his first card almost every time. There are two different versions of this game. Now, just artwork-wise, which, which was your favourite, the Japanese or the American? And this way I have to hold my hands up and say I've not seen the Japanese artwork um so i've only seen the american which i do like a lot but yeah what's wrong with me i should go and check that out okay cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right mate do you want to let us know why everyone should play love letter love letter is a lot of fun um it's so fantastic when your very first go very first card down you play a guard and you guess exactly what someone has and they're out of the round but they're not out for long because it's really quick fast moving and just a lot a lot of giggles that's why everyone should play love letter 
Hi, it's Natalie here, and the favourite game that's new to me in 2013 was Carcassonne, originally published in 2000 from Z-Man Games, and the designer is Klaus Jürgen Reed. I'm sure all of you know, but it's a tile placement area, influence area control game. Really simple, you just lay your tiles down next to ones that have already been placed, and you score off whatever's going on around with you and your meeples. I absolutely adore this game. The reason that I love it so much is that I think it's deceptively simple. I think anyone can pick it up and play it, you know, whether you're an experienced gamer or someone new to gaming. But there's there's deeper levels to it as well. I think the more you play it, the more you can think about strategies and just get really experienced. Because of the combinations of the tile, I don't think you're ever going to get fed up of playing this game. At least I haven't yet. So, Natalie, this is undoubtedly a classic game. Now... Does it still hold up in the market today? So we're 13 years on now from when this game was originally released. Does it still hold up now? Okay, well, I've picked it as my favourite new to me this year, so obviously I'm going to think that that's the case. But trying to look at it objectively, I still think so. As I've mentioned you know, it is deceptively simple. Anybody can pick it up. I think it's an ideal introduction game, which is going to, you know, is going to be really simple for guys to go, okay, you're new to board gaming here. Try this. And it's fun. There's a lot of interaction around the table, which I also really enjoy about gaming. I'm not a huge fan of games where you're just kind of sitting in your own little box doing your own little thing. The um, player interaction is, is something that I really enjoy about this. So, yeah, I think this is going to stand the test of time for some time to come. Have you had a chance to explore any of the many many uh, expansions and different different games i believe there's like a winter carcassonne game there is a winter carcassonne game and my darling husband who could that be got me um this edition for christmas because i'm i love all things christmasy and this winter edition is just gorgeous and i've played it twice already i think and i only got it like about three or four days before christmas um so i've explored that and now that i know how many expansions there are i think we might need to build an extension on our house because i desperately want all of them hi it's nathan here my best new to me game this year was suburbia which i played once earlier on in the year and i was so happy i went out and bought it as soon as i could find the funds and i bought it at essen with the expansion and I've played it several times since then. And um, I really enjoy it. It's a very fun city building game um, where you build up your city and try and uh, build a better city than other people and take advantage of the things that they're building and attract the greatest amount of population. There's a lot involved in this game. It's, uh, it's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things happening. Do you think it's a bit of a problem with analysis paralysis in this one? I think they're definitely could be but the one thing that helps with that is that there are so many city tiles that you might try and analyze everything and think oh if i take that tile then there's x y and z tile that will come out and help me because you don't know all of the tiles and i I play it mostly two player uh, uh, with terry my wife we only use i think half of the tiles that we have including the expansion so you really don't know everything that's going to come out. So that sort of takes out some of the analysis paralysis because there's the unknown factor in there as well. Replicating sort of the Sim City idea of building up a city in board game fashion is, seems to be one of those holy grails. There's lots of different games that try and attempt it. How successful is this game, Suburbia, in making you feel like you're genuinely building up a city and getting to grips with that theme? Um, I think it does it very well. 
because you you can see it going out. I mean, you have the the tiles are quite nicely illustrated, and they have different buildings on them, and you do see it spreading in front of you, and the theme really comes out through the different buildings. Like they they make a lot of sense. You know, you get the fancy restaurant which gets you lots of income, but if someone else builds a restaurant or if you build another restaurant, that income goes down because of the competition. And lots of smaller interactions like that that make it really feel like, oh, this is actually a sort of a living, organic city. In the game, with the different boroughs going on that different people are trying to build up, there's obviously interaction between the boroughs themselves. But does that really sort of equate to actual interaction between the players around the table? You know, there are some buildings that you build that will give you a bonus based on other boroughs and you take that into account but normally only after someone has built or housing something rather that whenever someone else builds some houses they get points those things happen retrospectively but the the main interaction or sort of screwage comes from when people you know take a tile and turn it into a lake that they know you wanted or they build something that they know you wanted because you have all of those tiles that you can on the track that you can buy and people do discard ones that they see are really good for other people uh, quite a bit so I, I found it quite interactive from that point of view okay and i've got one kind of specific question for you with regards to playing the game itself i haven't played it a couple of times uh complaints from me and from other players one of the main mechanisms in the game is the fact that as you become more successful either in money or in reputation there's sort of a taxation element so as your city gets bigger it's harder to manage but there's a couple of tiles that prevent that from happening now casino does it for money that doesn't seem so bad but there is pr firm that prevents that kind of taxation on scoring if someone can get hold of one or two of them very early on it means they're not going to be taxed in points the same way that everyone else can be taxed that that main sort of almost catch-up mechanism how do you think that does for the balance of the game i think as you said if, if they get one quite early on and if they get two i think it's game over um i don't see how you'd be able to do that because their their reputation track which brings in the people would actually increase by one each time they go up um across that taxation boundary and so it, it is quite a powerful one um i've not actually played with it i don't think but we've played with the casino and I think the main counter for that is there are some goals. I think there's one goal, which is you need to have the lowest uh, sort of reputation, which is your, you know, your people score. Um, and then you get the bonus of 20, I think 20 extra guys, which might discourage people uh, taking that. But for the most part, that does sound like quite a powerful one. Uh, and I would be quite keen to throw it away. <laughs> And uh, and to, to to turn it into a lake so no one else could use it if I couldn't afford it myself. Yeah, I, I got the same sort of feeling myself. Every time that pokes its head up, I just want to bury it as soon as possible. So just to finish us off on Suburbia, Nathan, tell us and everyone else why we should play Suburbia. If you have played anything, you know, like SimCity, if you like seeing something built up and building your not really an empire but building your you know sort of your your business empire building the city does feel really good and it is nice to get those tiles that will draw in points from other people's uh, boroughs as well if you like that sort of having something at the end of the game to look at then i think this is a very good one and it, you do 
feel that the you know each tile you think oh that makes sense and you do feel like you're putting together a city which has different functions if you're after that then i think this is a good game asked all our friends if their gaming Santa could bring them anything what would that be now before we start in earnest I thought I knew the person who loved Christmas the very most out of anybody I've ever met and that's my wife Natalie but that was until I met Lloyd Lloyd absolutely adores Christmas and we're going to break from the ranks slightly and we're just going to give Lloyd a little bit of time of his own and of course, this this special intro because he is Mr. Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas and a happy new year. I would like to tell everyone about Gumshoe for Christmas. Gumshoe is a choose-your-own-adventure game in the style of Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. However, it was released in 1985 as the second edition. It's never been reprinted, but it's well worth tracking down. It is a cooperative choose-your-own-adventure board game where you're off exploring clues and investigating crimes. This is Terry and Dear Santa slash Nathan, this year I would like Caverna by Uwe Rosenberg for Christmas. Thank you. Dear Gaming Santa, it's Puri here, and this Christmas I would like the ability to teach games, or at least some new friends who won't keep going on about it. Dear Gaming Santa, for Christmas I would truly love a gorgeous wooden box that I have seen on Kickstarter for my Dominion collection. Unfortunately, it's a little bit spendy and out of my price range, but I would love to find that under my Christmas tree. Dominion is my favourite game of all time. It's a card game, which I'm sure everybody knows. There are what feels like millions of expansions, so you can play this game from here until the end of time and never get bored. I would love to find that on Christmas morning. Hi Santa, this is Nathan. I've been a good boy this year and there are so many great games out there. I can't really decide, but if I were pushed, one game that I have played that I really enjoy is Kemet's. It's such a great looking game and it has a lot of interaction, lots of fighting, quite scrappy, and I get to maul Ronan, one of the game pit, uh, people, whenever I play it. Hello, it's Funny Kate. Dear Gaming Santa, this year I would like my flatmate to play more games with me because I don't want to leave the house. Dear Santa, I would very, very much like the War of the Ring Collector's Edition. Now, I know it's a big present, Santa, but I'm a huge, huge fan of the Lord of the Rings. And obviously, I'm doing this podcast, so I'm a huge board game fan. And it's kind of the holy grail for me in terms of gaming. It's just a wonderful thing to behold from what I've seen. I've only seen it in pictures, but I can't wait to see it in person, even if it's in a museum somewhere. But that's what I would dearly love. Dear Gaming Santa, for Christmas this year, I am being really impatient. I'd like you to work your Christmas magic and get me two upcoming releases to my door as soon as possible. 
they are the expansion for one of my favorite games of all times lords of vegas please bring me up so i can build my casinos up i'm so excited about this my game group are so excited about it it's causing ripples throughout london bring me lords of vegas up santa and the other one is if i could be greedy Please bring me Galactic Strike Force. It's from the Sentinels of the Multiverse Designer. It's a co-op and it's a deck builder. Those are three of my favourite things in gaming and I need it and I need it now. So we'd like to thank all our friends there for joining us during this episode. And we'd like to thank all of you for listening to us during 2013, the first year of the Game Pit podcast. We've had so much fun making the podcast. It's been great hearing from everyone and just hearing that there's people out there enjoying what we do. And, as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. You can catch us on 2D6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. If you want to have a chat to us, we are on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com, and you can also find us on Twitter at GamePitPodcast. So we want to wish you all uh, a Merry Christmas that you've had already and a very happy new year and a happy gaming 2014. Just text me you're late. The little male dog show would never do this. <laughs>